And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're tossing ourselves into the wild and wonderful world of the throw-in. Why do they exist? Who does them well? How useful can they actually be? To answer all that and more, I'm joined by Liverpool's new throw-in consultant. It's Graham Ruffin. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Don't tell the, the proper football <laughs> men about yeah, my right. new job because they seem to get very angry at the concept of a throw-in coach. All right, let, let's, let's talk about that for a second because we are going to talk about the history of the throw-in, why throw-ins exist, people who famously were quite good at taking them. But I was reading a bunch of articles about, well, I read two articles, about Thomas uh, Gronemark, the Liverpool throw-in consultant. He is no longer with the club, but he is, uh, I think, liaised with many, many different clubs around Europe. And it does feel like the... Reaction to him is is one of just consternation or scorn, and, and and it's so telling to me right there to your point about the proper football men that like rather than be inquisitive and interested in why a coach like Jurgen Klopp would want to explore the nuances of throw-ins, it's just immediate like oh can I be the kickoff consultant? Like it just, I don't understand why there's Which such there should derision. be as well. There should Probably. be a kickoff consultant. Probably given how often people are just like you know what kick it long and we'll see what happens. I feel like maybe a little bit of variety wouldn't be the worst thing. Yeah, I remember when that story broke and uh, I think it was Paul Merson. I actually like Paul Merson as a person, but he is kind of the epitome of a proper football man and him him losing his mind on Sky Sports News at the, at the thought of Liverpool employing someone to help them with a thing that right. according to, um, what's his name again? I haven't got it in my note, Thomas uh, uh, Graneman, I believe it is. Yep. Yeah, that Granamark. guy. Granamark. According yep. to him um, and his analysis, there are 40 to 60 yep. throw-ins per mm-hmm. match. That is a lot of throw-ins per match. So it makes sense for a manager or a team or whatever to look at different ways to perform better yeah, at them. Absolutely. And, and like two things there. First of all, 4 to 60, I think he is fond of pointing out, is a much larger number than the combined number of corners and direct set pieces you are likely to get. So it makes sense to look at ways to uh, maybe get more value out of throw-ins. On top of that, this is another point I saw him make, that people only think it's about teaching them to throw in long. And that was the joke I think Andy Gray made, you know, the, the pillar of of wise commentary, Andy Gray, saying like, <laughs> let me guess, it's like put the ball behind your head and then throw it. And, and his point, I like this quote, they only wanted to talk about long throw-ins and they thought I was crazy. But when you score a goal from a long throw, it's clear what a weapon you have. But sometimes it's about creating space, keeping the ball, switching play, and then scoring, say, 15 seconds later. And that's a big part of what he was brought in to do was basically help with possession retention off of the throw-ins, and for teams that want to have more possession and dominate possession and control the game via possession, making throw-ins into a 50-50 uh, situation doesn't really do that. So it makes a lot of sense yeah. why why you would want to explore your options and maybe get that 1%, 2% edge. Uh, I don't, again, understand why that has to be met with, well, this is stupid, versus, well, this is an interesting, nuanced take. I wonder what Jurgen Klopp is up to. 
Yeah, and also, does Andy Gray think that everyone can throw a ball really, really long? Because yes. let me tell you something, <laughs> yes, I can't, and most British people can't either. I think it's something, actually, that just Americans generally are better at, I guess because a, a lot of um, your kind of traditional American sports are are played with the hands, and yeah. in, in, the, in the UK we don't have that. British people are terrible at throwing a ball long, so even if that it was only about learning to throw the ball a longer distance, I'd still say that would that would be worth something. Andy Gray fully thinks that like he could go out there and throw the ball 40 yards, no problem. Like he definitely strikes me as that, like, it's not that hard. And then he goes out there and throws it like 10 feet and would then reposition himself to like, well, that was close enough. Like it's not that hard and just kind of ignore all the value that exists. But Graham, I guess we should talk about the throw in itself for a moment before we get into the history. Yeah. For people who are new to the game or require a refresher, what is a throw in and what is its purpose? Yeah, so I'm sure that the vast majority of listeners know what a throw-in, throw-in is. But, uh, <laughs> if they as don't, say, they are like closing their eyes for yeah. certain parts of the game, I guess? Like 40 well, or 60 might, times that, a game? Yeah, that might be happening. <laughs> throw-ins are probably generally one of the lesser exciting parts of the game. So maybe people are closing their eyes. Or maybe, as you say, someone is completely new to the sport. So the TLDR is a throw-in as a method of restarting play in a game when the ball has exited the side of the field of play. It's uh, it's where an outfield player will pick up the ball with their hands and they will throw it back into the field of play and they must do so with two feet on the ground and they must throw the ball with both hands from behind and over the head from the point of where it left the field of play. Um, of course, that last part is generally open to interpretation <laughs> and players will steal a few yards. One of the most common shouts at Scottish football games, lower league games anyway, is, where's he going, referee? When he takes like 10 <laughs> yards to a uh, 10 yard stride before taking the throw in but you're meant to take it at the point where it left the field of play and um a couple other things to mention is it only applies to the lines at the side of the pitch and not the goal lines where right. if the ball crosses there it's either a goal kick or a, or a corner kick depending on which team touched the ball last you can't score a goal directly from a throw in so if a player throws the ball directly into their own goal um, without any other player touching it, the result is a corner to the opposing side. I'm not sure I knew that. I'm not because uh, it's yeah. never happened. I've never seen a, a a player throw the ball directly from a throw in into their own goal. But apparently, that's a corner kick to the, the to the other side. I have seen on the odd occasion, it doesn't happen very often, where an opposing player will or a player will throw the ball directly into the opposition yeah. goal, and uh, if that happens, it's a goal kick for the defending team. I was aware of that one. So you can't score directly from a throw in. But it is an effective way, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, more later on about long throw-ins, but it can be in an effective way of scoring yep. a goal indirectly. indirectly. I remember in high school, uh, there was a known player in our conference who had like the longest throw ever, like could basically put it in the six-yard box from like anywhere within 40 yards of goal, essentially. And it was a thing that goalkeepers had to know. If he overthrows that and it's coming at you, do not touch it. Because it really does become like a test of wills of when there's a ball flying at the goal, the instinct of your goalkeeper is to try to make a play. And on at least two occasions, none of them were my goalkeeper, I will say. But on at least two occasions, I watched a goalkeeper sort of panic and flap at it and end up knocking it in. And if the goalkeeper touches it off the throw, then it's a goal. But like it takes those nerves of steel for the goalkeeper to just let it go and go in and then you get your goal kick and everything is right with the world. Graham, my question then becomes, before we get into the actual meat of the topic, 
You mentioning that it's like it's only uh, on the sidelines, not the end lines. On the end lines, you get a corner. Should that be the rule change? Should where it goes out of bounds on the end line? Should we have to take throw-ins from there? Like if you're taking a throw-in three yards from the goal, I feel like that could be a fun bit of attacking chaos. Potentially, I, I like corner kicks and I like set pieces, right? Fair. But do you remember we've spoken fairly recently about mm. how soccer would look without heading? Yeah. And one of the issues that we came up with was set pieces and corner kicks. I wonder if that's part of the solution. You just have throw-ins on, on the end line yep. and fewer headers from them, I think, maybe. Or more headers. Or, or yeah, you're maybe throwing, more. <laughs> or you're just like throwing as hard as you can and hoping that you yeah. bank it off somebody and in. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I'm into that chaos. Uh, and I think it's fitting given that the throw-in rule sort of comes out of chaos, basically. To take it all the way back, uh, around 1863, I'm guessing that's a number that you found in doing some reading, Graham. Yep. That's when football and rugby split and sort of start to go their separate ways, lest we forget. All of these sports, American football, rugby, association football, all sort of come from the same type of sport that was played in a variety of different ways with a variety of different rules. And even after they split, you still have different associations in football having different approaches to all aspects of the game, including throw-ins. Uh, and you, so you get sort of different approaches, different implementations. And it's only in, I believe, 1882 that you get the establishment of two-handed throws, or, or rather the following year. Graham, did you read about the year 1882? Because I feel like it will make you bitter. Uh, I didn't. Tell okay. me more. So, international match between England and Scotland, 1882. Uh, throw-in statutes were not yet formalized, as I said. Uh, and so Scotland basically agreed, like, sure, whatever you guys, like, if you want to take it one-handed, if you want to take it two-handed, we don't care, we'll do whatever. Uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, I'm stealing this directly from a source, uh, the England starting 11 included William Gunn, a talented cricketer. Uh, Gunn used his arm strength to launch one-handed throws that often traveled from the English half into the Scottish penalty area. Uh, so they basically... Uh, tricked you all, hustled you a little bit. The following year, the Damn. English FA changed the law, dictating that throw-ins must be taken from over the head with two hands on the ball, establishing the modern throw-in. And then we've had some sort of variation and change along the way since then. I thought you were going to say the following year, not only did they have a cricketer, but they had a javelin thrower yeah, right. and a, a, a team full of, of people who just launched the ball as far as 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 as, as far as they could. I am um, Taylor. Did you read anything on pre eighteen sixty three before? So no. in eighteen sixty three, the FA rules are, are codified, and that's when you have the the kind of modern throw in rule takes shape at that point. But before then. It was complete chaos. So apparently the way players would, would restart matches would be to have a sort of rugby-esque line-out where you had two lines of players, and, and this is where I lost the concept a little bit, but I looked at some drawings of how this would work, and I think this is right. So you have two lines of players, and then someone had to throw the ball in between the lines, almost like like bowling. Like They, they created an, a lane with two lines of players. You had to throw the ball down the line, oh and once it got to the end of the two lines of players, that's when the game was restarted, and it was almost like a free-for-all, which was completely nuts. I also learned uh, something, and that's the term that out of touch, which is something that I've said, I would normally say out of play, but out of touch is something I'm familiar yeah. with. I've said that a, a lot over my, uh, over my football supporting lifetime. That term comes from the original rule that possession would be given to whichever player touched the ball first. 
after it had gone out of play. <laughs> so once the ball went out of play, you had to like scramble and yeah. hustle hard to get that first touch on the ball. And that would be the person that would put the ball back into play. Yeah, it was complete chaos. I'm glad that I'm not the biggest fan of throw-ins in the modern form, but it seems better than what they had in uh, yeah. pre 1863. Uh, like in the original XFL, they abolished the coin toss. And instead it was two players, I think sprinted directly at each other. And whoever got the ball first got, got the kick. And as you imagine, <laughs> everybody got injured a lot. Uh, yeah. So that I don't think that would work, and I think, yeah, the situation you're describing just leads to a straight-up scrum. It also leads to teams just kicking it out of bounds, I guess. Like, if there's no punishment, if you're not conceding a throw-in, if it's then, like, now go chase it down, and whoever gets it first gets to throw it back in. It doesn't feel like it really uh, accomplishes what the throw-in is meant to accomplish, which ultimately is basically, at this point, just getting the ball back in- into play as quickly as possible, unless you're the home team and you're winning, in which case it's going to take some time to get it back into play. Yeah, and some other changes did happen over time. So in 1863, um, actually originally, as they were codifying the rules, it was proposed that kick-ins would be allowed as well. And then once the codification actually happens, kick-ins, is, they're taken out of, 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 of the, the wording of the law. But um, some other changes. So I mentioned the possession first um, thing to the, to the player that touches the ball first. Um, the, the ball had to be thrown perpendicular to the touchline. Whereas in obviously in the modern game, the ball had to be, you know, you can throw it in any direction and um, you could throw it in any way you wanted. So we had a listener question this week about why can't you throw with one leg off the ground? Well, back in 1863, even when they did codify the laws, you could you could do that. And it wasn't until um, a little bit later on, I think maybe 20 years later on, um, that they, they introduced the, the rule about having two feet on the ground and two hands behind your head. I'm kind of kind of into the idea of them bringing back the just one-handed throws and you just can take retired NFL quarterbacks and put them on your team. Mm. And then you basically turn every throw in within 80 yards of the goal into a set-piece opportunity. I feel like we could yeah. mess around with this one, although then you are, I guess, probably facilitating further head injuries. Well, Wes McKinney's already doing this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and then, Graham, moving to the modern era, unless you have more on the history... Nope, I think we covered True. everything. The, the the current throwing as it, as it is in the modern game yeah. has kind of been like that for like 100 years or something. Yeah, I mean, give or take, like I think initially it's you must throw it at a right angle or whatever and the English referee would be out there with a protractor and making sure that you've done everything exactly as you need to because the English are sticklers. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, generally speaking, it's in the rough vicinity of where the ball goes out. Unless you're Atraf Hakimi or Marcelo. Those are the two that I think of for some reason as being the ones who will always walk it up a good 15 yards before taking that throw. And they're very good at selling it of just like oh i'm looking for a teammate to throw it to and they just keep walking and walking and walking i like that scottish chant graham as a result um but broadly speaking roughly where the ball goes out of bounds uh two feet behind the line uh two feet on the ground the whole time throw is theoretically supposed to go over your head and then back over your head you're supposed to basically bring the ball over and then throw it back in maybe that has gotten a little bit more flexible because i think especially with long throws you sometimes see players bring it up like around their hip and over their head, which seems to no longer be called. And I do also think the way people take the long throws these days, it is basically a one-handed throw with the other hand sort of touching the ball, which is meant to be illegal. You're not supposed to have any spin on the throw, I believe. That's a giveaway that it's been taken illegally. But generally speaking, that's not going to be called. Yeah, I I found a a study from a few years ago 
which kind of lines up with what I thought. Oh, throwing but... studies. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you cited the Liverpool goal uh, no, throwing just, coach right at the top of the episode. <laughs> it's just like I can immediately hear like Andy Gray, who probably already turned off this podcast six times, turning it off again for like, oh, a study. I don't need studies on throw-ins. What are we nerds? Yes, yeah, we're nerds. I, 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 I don't think Andy Gray listens to <laughs> either TSS so either. or Soccer 101. In a way, I kind of hope he doesn't listen to, to us. Um, but yeah, I, fa- I found a study that said up to 30% of all throw-ins in professional soccer matches are actually foul throw-ins, which, yeah. as I say, aligns with what I would would think would be the case because just going to games, there are so many foul throw-ins during yep. a game. It's it's unreal. So yeah, I think officials and referees, obviously the, the wording of the law hasn't really changed at IFA but I think referees are, are quite loose in what they let go. What would you say are like the different styles of throw? I think there is obviously the long throw, and then I think there's just the get it back into play as quickly as possible. And then the only other one I would think of is is more of a... It's not quite a designed throw-in. I'm guessing you can have those, but I think of throw-ins that are meant to then facilitate a different action. The one that like exemplifies that in my mind would be... It's still one of the coolest things Teenage Me ever saw was an opponent who had been playing, I think, like European opposition. They'd been on a European tour for like three weeks and came back very, very good. Uh, the fullback threw it into the center back, who just like very casually flicked it on over his head and into the goalkeeper's hands, who then launched it yeah. 40 yards the other way. And so you can sort of allow for things like that, because obviously you can't throw the ball directly to a goalkeeper, but the flick on, then the keeper can pick it up. So you can have that sort of like designed play along the way. But generally speaking, I think of it as either long throw or short throw, taken quickly to kind of get the ball back in and reestablish possession. Yeah, I think those are the two the, the two kind of clearest classifications are short and, and, and long throw-ins. Um, quite often you'll see players play a wee short throw-in and then the player on the pitch will give it straight back to the player taking the throw-in and possession starts from from there. That That always seems to be something that in lower league football yeah. players struggle with because they try and take it on the volley and then they just play it straight out of out of bounds out of play mm-hmm. again and it's a throw into the to the other team um, I've seen players bounce the ball off a, another player's back and then it drops to the ground and they can go from there I see that a couple times every season there uh, this is another thing you're more likely to see in, in lower league football from my experience but throw-ins down the line which are then contested mm-hmm. for a header those are very common at Sterling yep. Albion. We have a lot of those. Um, possession never really comes from it. It's just a way of, a lot of the time, it's just a way of edging your way up the pitch because you're mm-hmm. counting on the opposition player heading it out of play again and you move a few yards f- further forward until you're in a position where you can chuck it into the box. It's pretty agricultural at times. Um, yeah, there's only so much flair you can bring to the to the humble throw-in, I think. But yeah. my favourite throw-in is the flip throw-in. Oh, you don't see it very often, but when you do, it is something special. So this is basically when the player, um, during the run-up, they will plant the ball on the ground. They then flip over it and use the momentum from the flip to increase the speed of the throw. And obviously it's to throw the ball a further uh, distance. And there was a, we spoke about this in the podcast this mm-hmm. week. There was an Iran player who did this in a match against Spain at the 2018 World Cup. And I will never forget it. It's one of the most memorable moments of that World Cup. I suspect it's not particularly like useful. I'm sure it gets a lot of like range on the throw. But I also feel like it's a good way to potentially like separate a shoulder or like land awkwardly. Yeah. But it is fully majestic. And I think if we ever had a scenario in which 
you've got like one minute left of, of injury time. The goalkeeper is forward and you had a flip throw into a goalkeeper goal. Like, would that be like, as in like flip throw in and then the, the, the goalkeeper rises, meets it, heads it home and gets the winner. <laughs> would a goalkeeper goal off of a throw in would that or off of a flip throw would that be it for you graham yeah i mean we've completed it right if it's done we've completed <laughs> the sport there's no point continuing after that point um, on, on the flip side uh not literally uh the the weird one that is strangely so difficult and i see new players the most foul throws i tend to see are new players trying to throw it very very short because if you have a person standing like right in front of you. If you have a teammate who's kind of come over to receive the ball and they're three feet away, it is, it's one of those things where like once you think about it, you will lose the ability to correctly throw the ball into the person because either you will raise your hands above your head and then like drop the ball, which is illegal, or you will carry all the way over and then drop the ball. It is a strangely difficult one to throw it like very short and have it not yeah. be a foul throw. That's the one that I tend to see called the most often at amateur levels. And that's and that's where, to be honest, maybe we can come on to this a little bit later on, I would be in favour of kick-ins. I just think kick-ins mm-hmm. in that specific instance are a much more effective way of just getting possession started again. Um, but yes, I, I've seen loads of foul throws. They never get called as well. I think almost because referees accept, ah, that's quite difficult to do if you want to throw the ball a yard. You can't really throw yeah. it behind your head. Nope. Um, you're going to get too much height and velocity on it that way. So they're just going to let it go. Graham, if you were going to do kick-ins, like, because then you run into the, you know, everybody standing right on the ball. I feel like you're just going to end up with somebody like smashing it off of a player and out of bounds and it's going to be another kick-in. Would you do time restrictions? Would you do nobody can be within five yards of the restart? How, how would you make that happen? Yeah, so kick-ins were, they were discussed by IFAB last year and they were part of a, a recommendation package put forward by Arsene Wenger, who works for FIFA in some sort of technical role. I don't think he's te- technical director, he's a consultant or an advisor or something like that. And uh, he wanted kick-ins to be trialled. Nothing, nothing came of that specific meeting, but I'd imagine they'll be discussed again at some point in the future. And, and there's a quote here from Arsene Wenger that, that I found. So he says, the target is to make the game more spectacular and quicker. Maybe with throw-ins, you could play with your feet in a limit of five seconds, for example. So that that hits at the kind of the, the time limit that you were you were talking about there, Taylor. And I, I can see his point because the number of times a player just wants to restart the game, and you see it in every single match. They're struggling to find an option, and they end up wasting time when they're they're actually not trying to. They're, they're they just want to get the game started again. They just want to keep possession. And I just think getting the ball on the ground and allowing a pass, I think in most instances it, it, it would speed up the game. Um, I do accept, I do accept that there would be like implications for throw-ins further up the pitch where you would be, um, essentially turning them into, into set pieces if you didn't have a, have a, have a time limit. Uh, and, we might need to trial that because that could have a that could have a big knock on effect. But my argument to maybe that not being such an issue is one, pe- like teams and players already do that with long throw-ins. They turn them into essentially mm-hmm. set pieces at a certain point in the pitch. And two, would those being set pieces necessarily be a bad thing? And also, a lot of modern teams play corners short now. Yep. So would they do the same thing with kick-ins? Would, would we really see Manchester City, if they were allowed to, launching the ball into the box from a kick-in high up the pitch? I, I think most elite-level teams anyway 
would just kind of use it to keep possession. So I would like some real world evidence to see how it would work. I accept there's challenge, there would be challenges. It would be a big change to the sport. But yeah, throw-ins are just, I just think throw-ins are a bit rubbish. Like they're, 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 they're such a weird outlier. Yeah. It's something that you're asking an outfield player to do that at no other point of the game do they have to use their hands. I sent you that uh, Nate Bargazzi uh, sketch from when he was hosting SNL uh, and he was George Washington talking about like his goal was to have their own uni- units of weights and measures. Oh, yeah. And, and he gets into like, we'll play football, a sport, a sport where you throw a ball with your hands to which they respond like, there's no kicking. There's a, there's a little kicking. And it feels like that, that's the thing with, with soccer. It's like there's no throwing. Yeah, there's, there's a little throwing. It's it's all kicking. And then this one moment, it's just a, a short throw and then away we go. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind kickings, especially because this is a a belief that late co-host Daryl Grove like first espoused in my mind. And I have really come to accept with very Few exceptions. The long throw, ultimately, I think is kind of stupid. Uh, or if not stupid, then it's it's very overrated. Because so often, Weston McKinney is an example of one where I think it's kind of overrated. No shots taken at him. You know I love Weston. But it's that huge kind of like looping throw. It's a moon ball that everybody can get underneath. And then it basically just creates a scrum. It creates chaos in the box. And maybe something will happen, but maybe it won't. Or maybe the goalkeeper will come and collect it. But there's so much loft behind it, and so often that's the case with long throws, that I think it doesn't actually lead to better, more consistent chances. It just leads to chaos, which can be useful. Yeah. But I think the, the the main exception, the kind of like one above all others, is Roy DeLapp, because he had the trajectory on it, that just sort of line drive throw that made it so difficult for people to to get underneath, to meet in the air, for goalkeepers to come and collect. And And I think unless you are sort of Hurling it in that way, uh, unless we forget uh, Roy DeLapp was a javelin champion uh, in school, which is why he was so good at throwing it that way. I, I, <laughs> I don't, don't think I knew that. <laughs> I didn't until researching this one. Uh, I always wondered. There must have been a reason, and now we know. Uh, I do think you, it's sort of an overhyped phenomenon, the long throw. Yeah, you're never getting a pretty goal from a from a long throw in, no. certainly. And and I think most of the time that the optimum outcome from a long throw in, if you're the attacking team, is maybe win a corner. And then from the corner, you mm-hmm. can maybe score a goal. But yeah, most players are just lofting it in there to create the chaos. Rory Delap being the exception, of course. Uh, it would be remiss of us to do a one-on-one episode on throw-ins and not mention mention the king yeah. of throw-ins, who would regularly chuck the ball about 50 yards. And it became a really big part of how... Stoke City played as a team under Tony Pulis. And as you say, it wasn't just how far he could throw it. It was how hard and flat the ball was. So it was kind of like a set piece. And Stoke, they would place towels around the pitch so that Delap could dry the ball off before uh, be- before throw-ins. It was a whole thing at the time. There is a, there is a YouTube highlight, highlights package of Rory Delap's best ever throw-ins. <laughs> I'm pretty sure no other player in world football has a has a highlights package of throw-ins. So, yeah, nobody yeah. else in my mind measures up to him, yeah. but um, Christian Fuchs was pretty good at long throw-ins. Mikel Antonio, whenever West Ham are playing, he seems to chuck the ball in quite often, and we've already West, uh, mentioned Weston, so... There are some honourable mentions, but Rory Delap was uh, he was the goat of football throw-ins. So so true. It's like Roberto Carlos free kick compilation, Rory Delap throw-in compilation. Yeah. equally valuable. Uh, where I do think that there is value in throw-ins, and this gets back to that uh, initial point I was talking about with uh, Liverpool's 
throw in coach uh, Thomas Gronemark. He's no longer there, as I said. But the idea that it's not just long throws. It's it's basically you have an opportunity here to, if you want to, basically run like an NFL-style play. You can. It's the one opportunity where from a restart you can throw the ball into a specific area where you can have runners making specific runs in specific moments. And and I think a lot of it had to do with off-the-ball movement. And yeah. uh, like that's like off-off-off-the-ball movement of you have a runner vacate space, you have a runner run into it, but while that's happening, you have another runner sort of darting into the middle to be there so that when the throw is taken, they're there for like the kind of knockback, pass-back, then he can find another runner. And like it's about facilitating facilitating really fast attacking play or transitions into attack out of a throw in by pre-programmed runs and movements that makes a ton of sense to me that seems like a thing that isn't going to you know make you a, a a champion necessarily but i do think if you're trying to find that extra percent or or just that extra little edge i think that is an area where you can sort of practice and practice and practice drill down and just have a little bit more sharpness in this one specific aspect that can lead to goals and scoring opportunities yeah the majority of innovations and in, in throw-ins now come from as you say taylor the the awareness of space and how to use it rather than the player actually chucking the ball yeah. into uh, back into the pitch and we've seen that with Liverpool. There was a, there are a number of, of instances of, of of attacks that have come from clever use of, of of throw-ins. It's not the most spectacular thing because it's just someone throwing the ball like five yards onto the pitch. But the way they open up the space yeah. then creates the, the the space for a transition moment and players. Because that's the other thing as well. It's not just about creating the space for a player to take the ball in possession. It's about the next phase. What yep. what what position are the players in to launch an attack or to retain possession or move the ball into another phase of play? So, yeah, there are some innovations to be made and uh, Liverpool seem to be at the forefront of them. Indeed. Uh, I do love the idea of hiring Thomas Grotemark for him to turn up and his entire presentation is just, have you considered signing Rory DeLapp? And then that's it. That's his throw-in <laughs> consultation. It was not. I think it was more than that. Well, his son's at Manchester City, so it feels like Man City See? might have the, the link there to bring in Rory Dill. that would be the, I know how um, Pep Guardiola has has made his has anglified his team a little bit go. with Haaland and more direct play maybe that's the final phase is bringing Rory Delap out of uh, retirement would would Rory Delap throwing to Erling Haaland that would just be a cheat code right like there's no way that's like before <laughs> basketball had dribbling right and it's like the guy could just walk down the court holding yeah. a ball in the air like there you go it's the same thing I think yeah, I think so. Uh, Rory Delap to Haaland or Rory Delap to Wendy Renard. Those are the two Exactly. There, there you go. Now you're winning all the World Cups. Well, Graham Rothman, we have somehow managed to talk about throw-ins for 30 minutes. When I tell people that we did that, I feel like they're going to look at me with, with head cocked and say, Yeah. Really? 30 minutes? Yeah, keep that to yourself. <laughs> I will not be telling anyone about this. But you know what? I enjoyed it. It's one of those things that... Like has a lot of little nuance, a little history to it that I think is just the right amount of history to review uh, here on Soccer 101, as opposed to trying to break down what like the history of the transfer fee. <laughs> like that that one's that was maybe a little bit more convoluted. This one a bit more straightforward. But Graham Ruffin, thank you for talking out throw-ins for half an hour today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening and continuing to listen and support Soccer 101. We greatly appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.